You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on Norwegian polar explorer Fridjof Nansen. Last time, we left Nansen just as he was departing Norway in the first week of May 1888. His destination was the east coast of Greenland, and from there, a dash across the world's biggest island, a feat never accomplished in human history. In today's episode, we will cover Nansen's Greenland expedition. Let's kick things off with a couple of notes. Note number one. If you want to see a map of Nansen's Greenland trek, go to explorerspodcast.com. I put one on the site, along with other fun stuff about our Scandinavian explorer. I do think seeing the map does help give you a better perspective of the expedition, so check out the website. There's a link in the show notes as well. Note number two. A lot of the names in this episode are of places in Greenland. That means we'll have some Inuit names, Danish names, and Norwegian names all mixed together. That means that some of the pronunciations may not be quite perfect, but I'll do my best. Anyhow, that is it for notes, so it's off to Greenland we go. Well, not quite yet. While Nansen had departed Norway, there were some stops to make. Nansen would leave separately from his team, and the plan for them was to all get together again in Scotland. From there, they would catch a ship to Iceland, where they would rendezvous with a sealing vessel named Jason, which would take them to Greenland. As for Nansen, he was off to Copenhagen in Denmark. There he would meet Augustin Gamel, his primary financial backer. Gamel was a Dane, so there was a bit of angst on Nansen's part, as he wanted the expedition to be completely Norwegian. His team was all Norwegian, but the money was not. But Nansen put those qualms aside, as the Norwegian government had passed on financing his expedition. A big reason they had declined to back Nansen was the perceived danger. Many people thought that he was taking a big, unnecessary risk. No one wanted to be associated with a failure. The Danish press, by the way, were as skeptical of Nansen's expedition as was the Norwegian press. Most people thought that Nansen would end up having to be rescued by the Inuit if they didn't die. And so, in Copenhagen, Nansen would meet with Gamel, who was gracious and supportive. Frankly, Nansen was lucky to have such a backer. Gamel had deep pockets, allowed Nansen to do things as he saw fit, and was truly interested in the expedition's success. Another person Nansen would meet with was explorer Gustav Holm, whom he had exchanged correspondence with about the upcoming expedition. Holm had been helpful and encouraging, even aiding Nansen in getting provisions. But he reiterated his warnings about traveling to East Greenland. Holm had been there. He said the ice would likely bar him from reaching the coast, especially this early in the year. No matter, Nansen was committed. 
He would next be off to London, where he met with key members of the Royal Geographical Society. They offered encouragement to Nansen, but stopped short of offering him their full support. Again, they didn't want to appear to be part of a failed endeavor. Next, Nansen would go to Scotland, where he would reunite with his team. And with that, let us reintroduce to you the members of the Greenland Expedition. Otto Svedrup, a rugged, independable 33-year-old sailor and outdoorsman, was the expedition's second-in-command. Olaf Dietrichsen was a 31-year-old career military officer and would help as a surveyor and mapmaker. 23-year-old Christian Christensen was a sailor and a gifted handyman. The latter skills would be invaluable on the expedition, as the small team size meant that the men wore many hats, making a handyman important. Both men were hardworking and reliable. From the Sami people in the north, there was Ule Nielsen Ravna and Samuel Johansson Baltu. Ravna, at 46, was the oldest of the group and the only member married and with children. Baltu was 27. Both men had lived all their lives north of the Arctic Circle and were accustomed to surviving in cold and rugged conditions. Another thing, all of these men were considered quality skiers. Also, something the five men had in common was experience working as a team. Whether on a ship or in the army or herding reindeer, each of these men knew what it meant to rely on others and to have others rely on you. The one person who didn't have any such experience was the leader, Nansen. Nansen was an academic, the only one in the group, and he had, all of his life, struggled in team settings. He was best when he worked alone. This means that Nansen, with his overwhelming personality, will often struggle in a leadership role, especially the larger the team became. But know that it won't be a huge issue on the Greenland expedition, as the team was small and the task at hand very focused. Nansen and his men would take a mailboat to Iceland. As the ship went north, the cold would drop with each passing mile. The men froze on board, except the two Sami, who were just fine in their traditional clothing. Ravna was so nonplussed by the cold, and uncomfortable sleeping below in such cramped quarters, that he slept on the deck of the ship at night. The team would reach Iceland on May 20th after 11 days at sea. There they waited for the arrival of their ship. As they waited, the men would train and go on excursions. Nansen would sketch in his notebook and take photos with a new portable camera. While practicing on the skis, Baltu would hurt his leg as he was unaccustomed to the Norwegian heel bindings. Nansen was so concerned about the injury, he considered leaving Baltu behind. However, he could find no Icelander willing to join the expedition. In the end, Baltu would recover from his injury, and it would not be an issue. The team would finally meet with Jason on June 3rd. The vessel even had a Danish warship to escort them on their way out to sea the next day, the crew cheering and the ship firing off its guns to salute the brave explorers. The departure day was perfect, clear skies and good weather, and the Jason set sail to the west for Greenland. They would run into ice the next day, a sign of things to come. After a week crossing the Denmark Strait, the Jason would sight the coastal mountains of East Greenland some 70 miles off, or 110 kilometers. But heavy, broken ice blocked the way west, and thus the ship retreated to avoid getting trapped in the pack. The team would settle in and wait for the opportunity to move west. Meanwhile, the ship took to seal hunting, Nansen helping out as a rifleman. The wait would go from days to weeks and then to a month. Finally, in mid-July, the ice began to break up, allowing the Jason to move west. The men would sight Greenland again on July 15th. As they got closer, Nansen had this to say about the coast. Quote, This landscape has a rare, wild beauty, more broken than anything I remember having seen. End quote. As a note, the east coast of Greenland is like a wall of mountains. Beyond the peaks was the ice cap, thousands of feet thick. The team would have to find a route up through the mountain range and onto that ice cap. The Jason sailed west for two days, getting to within 20 kilometers, or 12 miles, of the coast. But they could go no further. The pack was just too dangerous. 
Plus, the closer the ship moved toward the coast, the more they risked hitting uncharted shoals or submerged ice. Nansen decided it was time to disembark. The location was not far from the Sermonic Fjord. There was an Inuit village at this location, named Angmuxalek, and it was the furthest north any European had ever explored. Again, I recommend taking a look at our map on our site to get a feel for all of this. Before departing the ship, Nansen and the rest of the men would write final letters to family, friends, and associates. And with that, Nansen was ready to go. He had had a special boat built for this moment, complete with metal runners. The idea was that the men could take to the water in the boat, but if the ice closed in and blocked them, they could drag the boat onto a solid ice floe and wait until things cleared. The metal runners allowed the men to easily pull the boat onto the ice. However, the captain of the Jason, Moritz Jacobson, was concerned for the safety of Danson and his men. He felt the boat they had was too small, and thus he offered to let them take one of his whaling boats, which Nansen gladly accepted. Trying to get six men and their supplies into a single boat would have been difficult. Nansen, his team, their boats and provisions would thus be offloaded, and the men would begin rowing westward in a steady rain. The single cannon from the Jason was fired to mark the occasion. Captain Jacobson watched the two boats from his ship and estimated they pushed into the ice approximately five miles, or eight kilometers, before losing sight of them in the fog. But things had looked pretty good. The captain wrote to Augustine Gamel that it was likely they reached land on the evening of July 18th. But that is being a wee bit optimistic. Nansen and his men, three to a boat, rowed their way west, wending through the channels of open ice. The whaling boat had red and white markings, which were the Danish colors. Nansen's boat sported the red, white, and blue colors of Norway, as well as a small Norwegian flag. On the boats, the men, wearing brown oilskins with cowls pulled over their heads, rode steadily in the rain. The men, including Nansen, were confident. It appeared that the way ahead was open. They would close the distance to the coast by half and talked about making coffee and eating a meal on the shore that evening. But just as things looked like they were going great, the unpredictable nature of the Arctic ice reared its ugly head. The ice began to close in on the boats dangerously fast, likely the result of the tides. Nansen's wooden boats would be crushed in the ice, so a stable flow was found and the boats pulled onto it. A while later, the open water returned, so the boats were put back in. However, the whaling boat was damaged in the process and had to be hauled back up onto the ice floe. By the time it was repaired, the ice had closed up again. I want to note that the water here was filled with ice floes, bergs, and chunks of floating and submerged ice. Sometimes it was solid, other times it was not. But I want to stress that it wasn't as if they could easily just walk across the ice pack or haul the boats on it for long. The ice constantly moved and shifted, breaking up and reforming. It made walking across it very dangerous. The best the men could do was find a nice solid ice flow and wait for another chance to get the boats into the water. So, while the coast was tantalizingly close, it was still blocked by the ice and hopes of reaching the shore that day were gone. The team would have to camp on a stable ice flow that night. The tent was erected and a constant watch was set in case the water opened suddenly, or the ice showed signs of opening underneath them. That was a very real danger. The next morning, the boats were put into the water, but it was a frustrating situation. The ice would open suddenly and just as suddenly close, sending the men and boats scrambling back onto the ice pack. And even more distressing was the direction of the ice flow. It was moving southeast, away from the coast. The drift grew stronger and stronger, taking the men and boats with it. And as the ice pack moved further from the coast, it began to swell dramatically under their feet, threatening to break up at any moment. This would go on for days. Nansen would have the men practice loading and launching the boats on a moment's notice, but the drift was merciless. The flow they were camped on got smaller and smaller, waves breaking over the edges all around them. The men now faced two very deadly threats. 
If the flow the men were on fell apart, the team would have to take to the boats, and the odds of the boats surviving in a mass of ice chunks was not good. And the other issue was the danger of essentially being swept out to sea. All this made the team disheartened, especially the two Sami. Ravna and Baltu, believing that the end was near, took to reading from a Sami-language New Testament they had brought. However, just as quickly as it had started, the ice pack would shift southwest, back towards the coast. Nansen, by the way, had learned to navigate for the expedition, and he brought out his sextant whenever he needed to track his location. During all of this, the men's personalities would emerge. Svedrup was quiet and dependable. Dietrichson was talkative, while Christensen was reserved. Ravna was glum, while Baltu was good-natured and lively, although temperamental. He would, on occasion, let his emotions boil over, but such outbursts were usually gone as soon as they emerged. Also, regarding Baltu, his engaging personality brought some levity to the group. Nansen called him, quote, the expedition's minister of humor, end quote. And another thing I want to note about the team, despite all the ongoing problems, the men, for the most part, were not freaked out by all that was going on. As I noted earlier, they were accustomed to working in difficult conditions and did what was needed when a challenge came up. Of the team, it was Nansen who was the biggest wildcard due to his moodiness. As the boats drifted south, the mountains on Greenland's coast taunted them. Their destination was not that far, but they couldn't quite reach it, and every mile they drifted south brought them further away from Simulek Fjord, which was the spot Nansen had wanted to depart on their crossing. I want to stress that most of this time was spent sitting on the ice pack, the men prisoners to the drift. The team had found an old, solid ice floe to camp on and just had to wait for their opportunity. On July 29th, the men would wake to find themselves closer to the shore than ever before. And more importantly, the ice had broken up in front of them. Now was the time to escape. The camp was quickly struck and the boats put into the water. Later that day, the two boats would finally reach land, a small rocky island just off the coast and the water between the island and the coast was mostly clear. And while this was great, when Nansen took a reading of their location, it would prove to be disheartening. Over the past two weeks, they had drifted south about 235 miles, or 380 kilometers. The southern tip of Greenland, Cape Farewell, was only about 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, away. They could head there and reach a settlement, but that would mean giving up, and some of the men thought this was the best option. Dietrichson suggested that the team winter on the east coast and try to cross the next summer. Nansen weighed the consequences of each decision. It was getting dangerously late in the summer for a crossing. Cold would come sooner than later. But Nansen couldn't bear the idea of giving up. His obstinate nature and ego refused to yield to the idea of failure. Not while there was still a chance. The expedition would thus move back north, rowing their boats along the shore. The goal was still to reach Sermilek Fjord up the coast and then make the crossing to Disco Bay. That night, the men would have a special celebratory meal of chocolate, cheese, biscuits, and jam. And so, up the coast the boats went. The way was mostly clear, but the men had their boat hooks ready to push aside ice as needed. The rowing was exhausting, but progress was steady, the team making 18 miles, or 30 kilometers, on the second day. And then, that evening, as they were eating their meal, the men thought they heard human voices amongst the cries of the birds. Nansen grabbed the telescope and scanned the horizon. He would spot two black dots, kayaks. It was the local native people, the Inuit. Excited to find other human beings, the men jumped up and down, shouted and waved. The kayaks would, cautiously, approach them, as the Inuit had never expected to find white men in such a place. Nansen described the natives, who he called Eskimos, as wild-looking but friendly. With the combination of Nansen's Inuit language skills and an Inuit phrasebook and a lot of hand gestures, it was determined the natives were heading north to a large glacier called Pusortuk. 
Nansen knew about the glacier, as Danish explorer Gustav Holm had encountered it on his travels. It was six miles wide, or ten kilometers, its high icy cliffs jutting out into the ocean. The glacier was feared by the Inuit because large fragments of ice would break off underwater and shoot up to the surface like projectiles. The glacier's name translates into where the ice rises to the surface. The kayaks would depart, but the next day Nansen and his boats would encounter them on the opposite side of Pusorta Glacier. It was a camp of 70 to 80 men, women, and children, as well as dogs. Nansen could not withstand the urge to visit the camp, which reeked of seal blubber. The men described the Inuit as wild and unkempt. They wore sealskin clothing, and their tents were made of sealskin as well. Kayaks were all around, as were four umiaks, bigger crafts made of sealskin and driftwood. The men were shocked to find the Inuit went naked in their tents, and they were appalled to discover that they washed with urine, as they had no access to soap or any other cleaning materials. But the natives were friendly and interested in the newcomers. They were especially fascinated by the fur reindeer boots that the Sami wore. The Inuit were actually two groups, one heading north, the other south. The ones heading south were going to trade with the Danish settlements. They especially wanted tobacco. Nansen noted that they possessed non-native items, such as beads and wooden crates. That night, Nansen and his men stayed at the Inuit camp. However, they didn't sleep much because the dogs howled endlessly. The Inuit would leave early the next morning, and Nansen would tag along with the northbound group. He wanted to use their expertise and knowledge to help him up the coast. The Inuit were happy to have the Norwegians and their big boats go along with them. One of Nansen's boats would take the point, pushing aside ice chunks as they went. This was helpful to the Inuit, whose kayaks and umiaks could easily get damaged by the ice. At one point, it started to rain, and the Inuit put ashore. Nansen, however, pushed on. The team would end up getting caught in a fjord filled with ice and swirling currents. It is a reminder to take the advice of the locals, even if you aren't sure why. They have a reason for doing what they do. The Inuit would eventually catch up and pass the Norwegians in the night. Nansen and his men would thus continue on alone. Along the way, they saw abandoned Inuit camps, often littered with the bones of seals, polar bears, fish, and dogs. And while the ice was always a challenge, the currents and winds were aiming south, meaning the men were fighting for every foot they advanced. When they pulled into a camp at night, all the men were exhausted. And there were other mishaps to delay them as well, such as the time Dietrichson fell off one of the boats, breaking an oar at the same time. On August 6th, the men again ran into some Inuit. They traded with them, offering the native sewing needles, something they prized. The boats would travel with the Inuit for a while before parting. On August 8th, the team would reach Bernstorff Fjord and work their way through a myriad of icebergs. Some of these were huge. In fact, the boats actually rode into a tunnel and through one big old berg. Two days later, the team would reach Umivik Bay, a long fjord about 120 miles, or 190 kilometers, south of Sermalek, the fjord Nansen was originally aiming for. However, the men had been in their boats and on the ice for nearly two months, and they had been rowing for 12 straight days. The season was getting late. Nansen would scout up the fjord and find the ice appeared to stretch from the water's edge and onto the ice cap. Of it, he would say it was, quote, so simple that we had never hoped for anything better, end quote. With that, Nansen decided to make this their final landfall. From here, they would make the dash to Disco Bay. The team would set up camp on shore and have coffee and feast on some birds Nansen had shot. By the way, to this point, the team had avoided using a lot of the sledging rations. They had survived on hunting, mostly seabirds. The six men would spend five days at the camp, recuperating from their time on the ice and in the boats, plus preparing for their inland journey. Water had gotten into everything, and anything with steel parts on it, like the runners on the skis and sledges, was rusted. 
and many of the canned rations were encrusted in mold. Nansen would pack most of the supplies onto five sledges, but he did cache a collection of items, including two extra guns and ammunition. Under one of the boats, he left an account of the expedition to this point. It was now time to attempt the crossing of Greenland. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. It had taken Nansen and his men a month to reach the launching spot of their expedition but it was now time to begin a crossing of Greenland. Let us take stock of the situation. They had at least 600 kilometers, or 370 miles, to go. They had to get onto Greenland's ice cap, which, on average, is about 6,000 feet, or 2,000 meters, thick. That meant that the men were going to have to go up. Mountains surrounded them, but they had a glacier that appeared to take them to the top of the ice cap. Now, because they had five sledges and needed to go up, skis were not going to help them out, at least not yet. To start, everyone would have to trudge along on foot. The sledges would move well on the snow and ice at this point, but it took three men to haul them. That meant the team would have to pull a couple of the sledges forward and then go back and get two more, and then they would have to go back again for the final one. This made for slow progress as the men were covering the same ground over and over, and going uphill. It makes for exhausting work, and that's even if the snow and terrain cooperated, which was not always the case. The path onto the ice cap was littered with chasms and crevasses, plus rocky ridges called non-attack by the Inuit. And it's not as if there were signs pointing them to their destination. It meant a lot of scouting ahead and trial and error. At times, the men would follow a path only to have to turn around when they came to an impassable crevasse, or they'd have to lift a sledge over a ridge. One of the frustrating things about snow and ice as it changes in elevation is that it breaks, creating all sorts of fissures and cracks and so forth. It's dangerous and unpredictable. As an example of the team's progress, one day over a 10-hour stretch, the men covered only 5 kilometers, or 3 miles, and an elevation gain of 200 meters, or 650 feet. And we cannot forget about the weather. At these lower altitudes, it was warm enough to rain. This made for miserable conditions as everyone and everything was soaked through and through. 
Plus, it made the snow soft, meaning hauling the sledges was even more difficult. At night, the men would sleep in a single tent, three men to a sleeping bag. Most of Nansen's specially crafted items were working well. The clothing, the wind jackets, the tent, the sleeping bags, all good. Which was important because after a long day hauling sledges, the last thing the men needed was to be cold or wet as they tried to sleep. By the way, the Sami would gift Nansen a pair of their native boots, which were made of reindeer hide. Nansen found them amazing, his feet rarely getting cold, yet still staying dry even when he worked hard. The one item that struggled was Nansen's stove. While it was better than previous polar stoves, it took a long time to warm things up, especially as the men moved to higher altitudes. And this would be important when they had to melt snow for water. That was not necessary now, but sooner than later it will be an issue. The other problem was food. The men were getting a solid 4,000 calories a day, and while that was not bad, it's not great. They needed at least another 20-25% more calories to maintain their strength and endurance. One of the reasons for this was the pemmican that Nansen had gotten did not include fat, which was the norm. The men thus began to crave fat. Each man was given a small ration of butter once a week. It became one of the most welcomed and relished foods that they had, but it was not nearly enough. As a note, Nansen had not brought alcohol on the journey, believing it didn't help anyone in the long run. And the tobacco supply was limited, as Nansen felt it weakened a man's nerves and endurance. He only brought enough for a single pipe full for each man on Sundays. And so up the snow and ice the men went, their progress slow but steady. And soon the upward gradient eased, meaning only two men were needed to haul one sledge. On August 20th, they passed the fissured edge of the ice cap, and before the men was the unbroken surface of the interior. It was like a sea of ice, with long frozen waves across the horizon. This was a big moment as the surface was hard and polished and even. A single man could now pull a sledge, no more relaying back and forth. However, three days later, the snow would change. It became fine and crystalline and rough. It clung to the iron-shot sledges. Nansen would say, quote, The going is miserable. The snow became stickier and stickier and deeper and deeper. We sank four inches. End quote. The Inuit, by the way, had a method for dealing with such conditions. They would coat the runners of a sled with a thin layer of ice, and it would help it slide along. But Nansen knew nothing of this, and thus the sledges struggled except for in moderate conditions. The team, by the way, was still rising in elevation, just at a more gradual rate. The expedition plodded on as summer waned. By now there was no rain, just snow and harsh winds. Nansen said the grains of snow could be needle-like and slash exposed skin in high winds. It was like being in a sandstorm in the desert. And with no available water, snow had to be melted on the inefficient stove and dehydration set in. Dehydration saps a person of so much. They get weak and disoriented. They suffer from a wide variety of symptoms, including muscle cramps, headaches, and exhaustion. And there were other issues as well. Both Baltu and Ravna had developed snow blindness. Nansen gave them cocaine-infused eye drops to help with the pain. The men, as you can imagine, were miserable. They had not signed up for this sort of thing. They had viewed the expedition as a ski tour, not a slog up mountains and glaciers. Heck, they had barely used their skis at this point. Of it all, Christian Christensen would say, quote, my God, how can people wish so much suffering on themselves that they do this? End quote. Now, being that the team was on the ice cap, the wind was becoming a greater factor, and Nansen experimented with lashing the sledges together and attaching sails to them. However, there was a big problem with this. The winds drove the sledges southwest, not northwest, which was the direction to Disco Bay, and thus on August 27th, Nansen would make a major decision. The new destination of the expedition was now Gotthop, which today is called Nook and is the capital of Greenland. I will use the latter name for the rest of our story. 
Anyhow, a journey to Nook was not quite as epic of a crossing as if they had gone to Disco Bay, but it was a sensible decision considering their status, and completing the crossing to Nook would still be considered traversing Greenland. The change made the men happy as it cut roughly 100 kilometers, or 60 miles, off their journey. The men would continue on, sailing the sledges when possible, but hauling them when needed. Up until now, the team had not really used their skis, but it was here that Baltu would break them out and find the going not too difficult. The skis Nansen had ordered were made of birch with thin iron plates and a strip of elk fur down the middle to help them glide in the wet snow. However, the skis struggled going uphill, and the grip was not very secure, but several of the men gave them a go. The rest of the team turned to using snowshoes. Nansen had brought big Canadian-designed shoes, which no one had really used. The Sami refused to try them and stuck to their skis. After some fits and starts, the rest of the men soon figured out how to use them effectively. On August 31st, the men were essentially on Greenland's ice cap. They no longer could see any land. There were no mountains or ridges protruding up out of the ice pack, just a sea of ice and snow. They were at an elevation of about 2,500 meters, or 8,200 feet. They had spent 17 days plodding upwards to get to this point. In short order, all the men would be on skis, and progress would be much smoother and steadier. However, this high up, the cold and wind got brutal. On September 4th, the temperatures dropped to negative 18 Celsius, or 0 degrees Fahrenheit. The wind chill was a balmy negative 50 degrees Celsius, or negative 58 Fahrenheit. And thirst was even more of an issue as melting snow became extremely difficult. Luckily, the clothing and tent kept the men warm and dry. Here's a crazy story I wanted to share with regards to the extreme temperatures. On a bright day, Nansen took the temperature of the shady side of the tent. It registered negative 40 degrees Celsius. The Fahrenheit equivalent is negative 40 degrees as well. Nansen then took the temperature on the sunny side of the tent. It registered at 40 degrees centigrade. Not negative 40, but 40. That's 104 degrees Fahrenheit. No matter, as long as the weather was okay, the men were making around 15 kilometers, or 9 to 10 miles, a day. Nansen said the model was, quote, death or the west coast of Greenland, end quote. However, the cold snow and wind would persist. On September 6th, the men would wake to find their entire tent nearly buried by drifting snow. They used whatever they could to prop up the tent wall so it wouldn't collapse. The wind had been so fierce during the storm that if the men had had to go outside, they had to crawl, otherwise they would simply get blown over. But when the weather cooperated, the team would move forward. The next day, they reached an altitude of 2,720 meters, or 8,920 feet. They had reached the summit of the Greenland ice pack. The main thing about reaching the summit was that after going up, you now got to go down, which is much more fun. And so onward the men went. The sails were used on the sledges if possible, but they would be hauled if necessary. When the sails were used, one of the men stood in back, holding onto a bamboo pole attached to the sledge, acting as a helmsman. The one major issue was if the sledges got going too fast and they couldn't be stopped. One time the men had to bring the sledges to a quick halt as they neared a chasm, which was a 100-meter drop, or 330 feet. But things would go well. One day, the conditions were perfect, and the men pushed themselves as long as they could manage. They covered 70 kilometers, or 44 miles, in that single day. The sledges were, by the way, proving to be outstanding. One of them did break down and have to be abandoned, but otherwise they slid along the surface at a rate most polar explorers could never imagine. Nansen's vision was bearing fruit. On September 17th, the team would sight a snow bunting, which is a small bird. It was the first living creature they had seen in weeks. It was an encouraging sign. As they approached the western coast of Greenland, the landscape began to transform. 
The flat surface was replaced by increasing numbers of gullies, chasms, ridges, and crevasses. Progress would slow as the men had to carry the sledges over rocks or find their way around crevasses. Eventually, the gradual decline in altitude became quite dramatic, forcing the men to take off their skis and lower their sledges down steeper slopes. Now, two milestones were reached at this time. First, the men, for the first time in a month, discovered fresh pools of water. When they found the water the first time, they rushed to it and pushed their faces in, drinking to their heart's content. It was a big moment, physically and mentally. Dehydration was now removed from the picture. Mentally, it offered the men hope that they were nearing their destination. The second item was that Nansen recognized the mountains that they were approaching. The men were running a little north of Nook, so he shifted his course for the next two days. But the fact that they knew where they were, and where they needed to go, was a huge morale boost. Now, one advantage to the lateness of the season was that most of the streams and ice fields were frozen over. This turned them into highways. Streams flowed to the fjords, which flowed to the ocean. Follow the streams, you reach the coast. On September 24th, the men would lower themselves down a steep slope, their crampons digging into the ice. Inch by inch they went, all the while carefully lowering the sledges so they didn't go flying away. Slowly, surely they went, finally emerging at the bottom of a glacier tongue and there they stepped onto the earth for the first time in 41 days. Nansen would say this of the moment, quote, Words cannot describe what it meant to feel earth and rock underfoot, the sense of well-being that rippled through us when we felt the heather give under our souls, and that the smell of wonderful scent of grass and moss, end quote. The team was thrilled. The ice cap was behind them, although they still had another 100 kilometers, or 60 miles, before they reached civilization. The six men would now have to abandon the sledges and skis that had taken them across Greenland. They were now backpackers for the rest of the march. Nansen had the supplies divided into six equal loads, and the men set off. Down into valleys they went, the vegetation thickening as they did so, and it was not long before they saw signs of the Inuit people. The team would make their way down into a fjord, reaching sea level for the first time in weeks. They had, officially, crossed Greenland. Now, the fjord had high mountain walls on both sides, which the men could not scale. This meant that they could not go overland to reach their destination. Nansen decided that he and Svedrup would travel down the fjord and summon aid for the rest of the men. For this, they would need a boat, which they did not have, so that meant they would have to build one. The result was a two-and-a-half-meter, or eight-foot-long, vessel. Bamboo ski poles, brush, and branches were used for the hull, and the tent ground sheet was used to cover the boat. It was all lashed together, crude but effective. Nansen and Svedrup's journey would start off with a lot of challenges. The water was not yet deep enough to ride the boat down the fjord, so they would have to carry it or drag it. This was a slog. The earth was nothing but sludgy mud, the men sinking ankle deep. On the plus side, game was now readily available, in the form of seabirds. Early on, Nansen would shoot six large gulls. They would cook the birds, the first fresh food they had eaten in 46 days. As for the boat, once the water was deep enough, the men climbed on board and floated down the coast. The craft leaked and had to be bailed constantly, but it was seaworthy. On October 2nd, the men would reach the mouth of the fjord, and then the following morning they would sight a building. It was a mission station just outside of Nook. Once on shore, Nansen and Svedrup would be greeted by a swarm of Inuit women. They thought the two men were shipwrecked Americans. They were soon joined by a man, Gustav Bauman, who happened to be the governor of the area, he had, by chance, just arrived at the mission for a visit. Bauman reportedly said, Are you Englishmen? To which Nansen replied, No, we are Norwegian. When Bauman asked his name, he replied, My name is Nansen, and we have come from the ice cap. Bauman then said something rather unexpected. Quote, 
Ah, I thought as much. May I congratulate you on your doctor's degree? End quote. I love that Nansen had just crossed Greenland, the first person ever, and the first thing they mentioned was his doctorate. Anyhow, the two explorers were greeted as heroes. A small cannon was fired to celebrate their arrival, and people came from all over Nook to see the men. Nansen and Svedrup, by the way, were filthy. Their hair and beards were long and tangled. Their faces were black from ashes and grease and dirt. They would have been quite the sight. The first thing that Nansen asked about was if the last ship had left for the year from Nook. He was disappointed to find that it already had, which meant he would be stuck here until spring. But Nansen wanted to get word to the outside world of his accomplishment. There was no telegraph in Greenland, but Nansen was told that there was a ship scheduled to leave from the port of Evektud, about 500 kilometers or 310 miles to the south. The main issue was if the water started freezing, the ship might have to depart early. And thus Nansen quickly wrote out a few letters and had them rush south by two Inuit in kayaks. As luck would have it, the ship was still in port. It could not wait for Nansen and his team, but it would at least be able to bring the letters. The ship, along with the letters, would arrive in the Norwegian port of Farsund on November 9th. A telegram of the contents was then sent to the expedition's backer, Augustin Gamel. The message? Nansen had done it. He was over the cap. All was well. It wasn't long before news reached the rest of the world. Nansen was now famous. However, Nansen could not reap the benefits of his success sitting in Greenland. He would have to wait for that. Instead, he would organize the return of the rest of the men who were still camped up the fjord. They had been waiting anxiously for Nansen's return, growing more and more worried that he had not made it. But they would eventually be brought back by the locals. Like Nansen and Svedrup, the first thing they did was gorge on food. And so the men would have to wait until spring. Nansen adopted Inuit dress that winter and learned how to survive in a polar environment. He learned to throw an Inuit harpoon, how to use a kayak, and even the language. He found the Inuit to be highly adapted to their world. Now, some of this was Nansen simply being fascinated by something new, but it was also a hint of what was brewing in his mind. Already, Nansen was plotting out his next great adventure, a run at the North Pole. But that will be for next time. Instead, Nansen and his team, most of whom learned how to hunt and fish and kayak with the Inuit, would ride out the long winter. It was not an unhappy time for the men, who found the Inuit friendly and welcoming. When a ship would arrive on April 15, 1889, it was time to pack up and go. Nansen had grown fond of the place, writing, quote, It was not without sorrow that we left this place and these people, among whom we had enjoyed ourselves so well. End quote. The ship would thus depart with the team, although Baltu was saddened to leave as he had fallen in love with a local girl. However, she was already engaged, and he was thus heartbroken. The voyage that followed would take 27 days to reach Copenhagen. The ship had brought with it a ton of mail, piles of letters and cards congratulating Nansen on his wondrous accomplishment. Nansen's brother, Alexander, wrote that he was no longer known as Alexander, but as Nansen's brother. Anyhow, the men would arrive in Copenhagen to the cheers of thousands. Augustin Gamble feted Nansen and his team, keeping them there for a week. The press loved Nansen. He was tall and blonde and handsome, the image of a Viking. One journalist said he was, quote, the lion of the moment, end quote. In his speeches, Nansen frequently downplayed the rigors of the expedition, making it sound as if the journey had been easy. From Copenhagen, it was back to Norway. There, people were ready to welcome home their heroes as Nansen fever swept the nation. They arrived by ship in Christiania, where they were escorted into the harbor by hundreds of boats. It was estimated that 30 to 40,000 people had gathered to welcome home Nansen and his team. One story I love from this great celebration involved two of the team members. As they approached the city and saw all the cheering people, Dietrichsen asked one of the Sami, Ravna, about the welcome, saying, quote, 
Look, isn't it wonderful with all the people? End quote. Ravna replied, quote, Yes, wonderful, very wonderful, if it had only been reindeer. End quote. Anyhow, what followed for Nansen and his men was ten days of parades and parties and speeches. There would be medals for everyone. After that, the mania faded and the team, except for Nansen, would board trains and head home. For Nansen, Christiania was home, so he had nowhere to go. However, by this point, he just wanted to be left alone. He was tired of repeating the same stories and answering the same questions. Frankly, it was boring. Instead, he would look to his future, which now offered all sorts of possibilities, including financial security. His boss at the museum in Bergen, Daniel Danielson, wanted him to come back, but Nansen declined. He knew there was more out there for him than life in Bergen. The University of Christiania would offer him the position of curator of the zoological collection. The job had no specific duties or responsibilities. They wanted Nansen's name more than anything. With a salary of 3,000 krona, which was quite generous, it offered him the opportunity to have some security and to do whatever he really wanted. He would accept the position. As for what to do next, well, Nansen would start by putting together an account of the Greenland expedition. The result would be the book, The First Crossing of Greenland, which would come out the following year. The other big thing for Nansen was a wedding, as he would get married just a few months after returning from his now epic journey. But let's hold that story for next time, because we are pretty much wrapped up for today. Fritjof Nansen had done it. He had become the first person to cross Greenland and was world famous. He had accomplished the feat with a fresh and innovative approach. His use of skis, specially designed sledges and gear, had been a great success, and he had done it without the loss of life, rare for such endeavors. Also, the crossing revealed to the world exactly what lay in the center of Greenland. At 28, Nansen had the world before him, and next time we will get him on the path for his next big adventure, a go for the North Pole. Now, before we end today, I want to visit with a few of the people in our story, because most of them we are done with, but I want to let you know about their fates. Otto Svedrup, the expedition's second-in-command, we will hold off on, as he will be on Nansen's next expedition. Olaf Dietrichsen, our military officer, would head back into the army and have a long and successful career, rising to the rank of major general. He would die in 1942. Christian Christensen was invited on Nansen's next expedition, but by then he would have a wife and a family, and he would ultimately pass on the opportunity, even if he was sorely tempted. He would go on to work as a foreman at a timber yard, as well as on a farm, before spending most of his life working for a shipping company. He died in June of 1943. Regarding our Sami, neither of them was done with exploration or adventure. Ola Nielsen Ravna would apply to be on Nansen's next expedition, but was passed up due to his age. However, in 1905, at the age of 65, he went back to Greenland as part of a team looking into the possibility of setting up a reindeer farm around Nuuk. He would return to Norway, but die the following year. The last member of our team was Samuel Baltu, the excitable Sami whose good humor had been a great source of relief on the Greenland expedition. While Baltu would go on to write a book on the expedition, it was honest and interesting and provided us with a lot of great insight into the endeavor. Nansen would even use some of Baltu's text in his book. In some ways, Baltu struggled to adapt to life after the expedition. His home in the north was now very small after having done and seen so much. He wrote Nansen about coming on his next expedition, but his lack of sailing experience, plus his unpredictability, made him ill-suited for such a large endeavor. His offer would be declined. Baltu would spend some time in Alaska, helping expand the reindeer herds brought from Siberia. He would also do some gold prospecting. Baltu would ultimately return to Norway and get married. He died in 1921. Side note relating to Baltu. 
1925, diphtheria broke out in Nome, Alaska. 20 mushers and 150 dogs were organized to carry the medicine across Alaska to save the city's population. The lead dog on the final stretch of the journey was named Bautu in honor of our Sami explorer. Bautu the dog would go on to become one of the most famous canines in the world. And so, that wraps up the story of Fridjof Nansen's 1888 Greenland expedition. It had been a great success and thrust Nansen onto the world stage. Next time, we will follow Nansen as he develops his plan to reach the North Pole. That is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please take care, stay healthy, and I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other independent podcasts such as Big Picture Science and Clever. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big